that up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I've been stretching. G'day, guys. Uh, welcome to the ISIS podcast. It's great to have you on. Uh, I know we met Aiden uh, at the Valhalla Strength and Conditioning, where you did some talks there, um, and you are highly regarded there um, as helping guys as they lead up into their comms. Um, so it's great to get you on and, and talk about some things. Um, Tyler, mate, great to meet you. What's the go with nutrition and dietetics and why did you get into it? Oof, that's a, that's a long one. Um, I'll try and be brief with it. But basically, um, quite a few years back, I got into, I guess, a little bit of biohacking type stuff. I went down the rabbit hole of having a look into what you know, guys like Tim Ferriss were doing and how they were trying to optimize human performance and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then that kind of led to one extreme to the other and you start getting into or introduced to guys like Dave Asprey and those guys who are even more next level. And then some of those things are a bit too far left of field for me. So I guess it kind of led me down to the path of, you know, what's the legitimate science behind this? Uh, maybe I should look into it a little bit more and become a bit more educated in a traditional manner. And that kind of led me going back to university. Um, before that, I'd been into like personal training and coaching for quite a number of years. Um, I owned a couple of gyms in Brisbane on the Gold Coast and was kind of looking for something else to challenge me or stimulate me a bit more mentally. So I went back into the, I guess, the nutrition and exercise sciences with the intention of getting yeah, a bit more of a classical education in those areas, a bit more than you can sort of often get on your own or through following these sorts of guys on the internet or whatever it is. Um, and through that, I guess, I guess I kind of just followed my, my passion for performance nutrition or like human optimization or enhancement, um, as part of my kind of, I guess my ethos, it was all about, yeah, operating at a higher level or kind of improving your own performance, whatever that may be. So, um, my Instagram handle lift dietetics, the whole lift thing comes from lift your performance, whatever that might be like lift whatever is important to you. It could be optimizing, you know, how you perform at work. It could be gym. It could be at a high level sport. Um, whatever it is, it's kind of all about that. I guess optimization, yeah, performance or whatever else you want to do there. So I went down that, that rabbit hole pretty deep and followed that through all the way to a university degree and a master's level education in dietetics. So what's, yeah, I was going to say, first one off the bat, what is too left field from Dave Asprey? What's the stuff you like? Uh, hang on. Well, uh, if we're going to go straight, if we're going to go straight to Dave Asprey, uh, I've, got a, I've got a few questions because he went from biohacking superstar to complete fraud in the space of one Joe Rogan podcast, <laughs> yeah. which, wasn't, which wasn't entirely fair, I don't think. Um, but where, where's, where's the community stand on him now? Is he respected still or is he... Selling Maori coffee. Mate, to, to be honest, the last I heard of him was probably that Joe Rogan podcast. Like, if you're trying to pull shit over Joe Rogan's eyes, you're going to have trouble, I think. He's got that super speculative hippo. But, um, you know, that's actually, yeah, probably the last I've heard of him. And to be honest, I'd fallen out of kind of followed him for quite a while before that anyway. Like, some of that, you know, crazy stuff that he, you know, he wears the yellow light glasses around and all those sorts of kind of, Things are a bit odd and I don't know, it just takes things a bit too far for me. Um, what, what was the stuff that Joe Rogan pulled out? Did he slay him on air, did he? Bulletproof coffee. Yeah, so <laughs> um, in, in a nutshell, um, bulletproof coffee is essentially coffee and butter, a little bit of MCT oil. But Asprey made out that it was – you had to use his special formula because it was super special coffee and then Rogan <laughs> tugged into it. He's like, 
no, bro, that's just coffee. <laughs> but I mean, I think that was the drama with him, wasn't it? Like a lot, he was one of the leaders in in kind of bringing these fringe ideas to mainstream. And yeah. you can't patent that stuff. It's it's he was just selling products that are already out there, but he was teaching people to have them in different combinations. And I mean, I still call it bulletproof coffee, and I yeah. drink it every day. Yeah. I just make it myself. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely so what something. It, um, that's what I used to do keto diet. Before I was a dietitian, long before I was a dietitian, I was well into the cyclical ketogenic diet. Um, I followed Tim Ferriss's protocols and obviously, yeah, it was well into the bulletproof coffee and all that sort of stuff. And I still think it has its place um, as a diet or nutrition strategy. Not typically what I would recommend to most people, but yeah, that's how I got into aspirin and all that sort of stuff was that bulletproof coffee and that whole rabbit hole as well. All right, so I, I think I need to go straight off script here and start talking about keto. I love it. I, I get that every human on the planet's unique. They need their own. Well, they, they need a dietitian to tell them what's good for their body. I get that. Keto works for me, and I'm kind of getting sick of people telling me that it's a fad diet. Where where do the dietitians stand on keto at the moment? Do you want to have a crack first? Eh? Yeah, I'll go first. So, like, one of the... Like, I hate starting here, but the, the compliance rate thing, I'll start with that in terms of, like, you're obviously an outlier. Um, in terms of there's one study that comes to my mind that had 300 people in the low-carb group for an entire year where they weren't told to go keto. They were just told to go as low as they could sustainably maintain. It's a bit of a, bit of a difference. But at the end of one year, not a single person was in keto. So I'm like, well, we can't use this as a cover-all solution. That's my starting point for if, like, if it was optimal or whatever, it still doesn't solve the problem on a like kind of population level on an individual level though it's something that like i'm a big believer that there are people who it's like the best option for there are people who feel better on it there are people who it is easier to stay leaner on it because it makes it easier to consume fewer calories consume a sufficient amount of protein feel good all of those kind of things i am also a big believer that if you set it up appropriately you're not missing out on a lot of stuff like you can make sure you're getting a sufficient amount of all micronutrients and stuff like that the gut health one's a little bit of an interesting one because it's like well it's clearly lower in certain types of fiber it's clearly lower in plant-based diversity and stuff like that but that's a deep rabbit hole by itself and it's like can you have a healthy life near optimal performance feel good all of these kind of things without even addressing that deep rabbit hole you definitely can um those are my thoughts on it i'm okay with it i've i've trialed it in the past um there's a few things to think about there but those are my thoughts tyler um yeah so i guess apart from having some personal experience in keto um part of what i did throughout my master's or part of what we do as dietitians going through a master's or, or that level of education is we have to do some sort of uh literature review or research-based kind of I guess, aspect of the degree. So for myself, um, what I ended up doing was a review on the ketogenic diet uh, with relation to its, I guess, with its medicinal benefits in treating epilepsy. So a lot of people don't realize that the ketogenic diet comes from, you know, it has clinical origins in the treatment of epilepsy. So a lot of it stems from the fact, I think, that the brain can use ketones, which are produced when you go into ketosis from a keto diet, um, and it's an alternate fuel source for the brain. And the brain can sort of access them in a bit of a different way that it can access carbohydrates. Um, so what um, keto was traditionally used for was a treatment of epilepsy, specifically in the pediatric population or in, in children. And it was allowing these kids to, you know, 
that were having seizures constantly, even with medication to step down medication, or even if they were having seizures along with the medication, putting them then on a ketogenic diet, reduced the incidence of these seizures. Um, so what I did in university was a, a literature review on, you know, the legitimacy of the ketogenic diet in adults in treating medication resistant epilepsy. So we worked with some of the ICU dietitians in a couple of hospitals around Brisbane and put together a review on this. And, um, you know, apart from, you know, the, the population being obviously epileptics, there was no real dangerous side effects of these people being put onto a ketogenic diet. Um, so, you know, it definitely has its place in, in medicine and as a, I guess, a treatment for some of this sort of stuff. In terms of how well does it fit into, I guess, the general population or the, the otherwise healthy and well person, I think it's almost like any other diet. You can do it sensibly or you can do it like an asshole. Like the same as a vegan diet, like Oreos are vegan. You can eat lettuce <laughs> and stuff like that, or you can eat your body weight in Oreos. Like, you know, it, it's one of those things where keto, yeah, you can drink bacon grease and eat coconut oil till the cows come home, or you can do like, you know, relatively lean meats. You can do fatty fish, you can do nuts, you can do a certain amount of little carbohydrate vegetables. Yeah, or you can do it like an asshole, and that's going to have a flow on effect to your cholesterol and to your overall health and your body weight and your composition and those sorts of things. In terms of like sustainability, it, it comes down to Aiden said, like it comes down to the individual. What do they want? Um, how well can they comply to it? I think one of the problems with keto is in, in my perspective is it's very hard to do one foot in, one foot out. It's like if you're trying to be ketogenic and you want to do that high fat lifestyle and operate that and you feel better like that, it's pretty hard to then cheat with, you know, whatever it is, a chocolate or ice cream or a muesli bar a couple of times a day or grab a bag of lollies or whatever it is because I think a lot of the problems with ketogenic diet, and again, not not much literature on this sort of stuff, and it's pretty hard to study, but if you're doing very high fat and very high sugar and throwing those two things into the mix, I think that's where the problems are going to come from. Whereas if you have a you know a moderated intake of both, it's fine. But if you're doing either one to either extreme, that's probably going to cause problems. So I think, yeah, a keto diet probably has its place on that individual basis. And if it works for you, awesome. Like I myself, I did it for, for quite a few years too. So... I found I had really good results for it. Um, I was some of the leanest I'd ever been on it and I felt great. Um, but yeah, from a sort of performance aspect too, it can be a little bit problematic depending on your sport and what you're looking for in terms of your training and your competition. But yeah, in general, I think it's just as valid as any other diet. Good. I like it. Yeah. I, I like a bit of confirmation bias. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like probably yeah, fall, fall victim to a little bit of that potentially. But uh, yeah. You know. No, I mean, I, I did listen to that podcast the other day with Rhonda Patrick and she was breaking down like her experiments with, with the ketogenic diet and, and she made it blatantly obvious the majority of people doing this are having a high-fat, low-carb diet, but they are nowhere near ketosis. Um, and I've, I've done that, like not anymore. I, I If someone said it, what, what kind of um, eating habits do you have, I would, I would still use the word keto, but there's no way I'm in ketosis at the mm. moment. I eat too many vegetables. Mm. Um I used to monitor it and like when I was first experimenting and it took, it was a mission to start getting ketones above like three, what do they call them? Millimolars or whatever yeah. it comes up on the. We do a blood or you're three right. Or th For the testing. Blood. Yeah. Okay. Right. Blood. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got a blood monitor. Um, and again, at the time I, I knew very little, uh, I hadn't read a lot of research. Dom Diagostino, I don't know if you've ever checked yeah, his stuff. He was the only guy stuff I was reading yeah. and he's so scientific. I was like, yeah. There's a balance between reading about dietetics and nutrition and then getting lost in and bored around reading scientific papers. <laughs> but 
I, I went down the rabbit hole for a bit for for at least a year, super strict, and then now it's just lifestyle, like trying. I I, I find I function best because I fast in the morning and then um, eat two meals a day or, or one some days, and it's just a lot of fat. Yeah. Um, but before. Rather than spending this whole thing talking about keto, because I definitely could, and Max is supposed to be running the podcast, I just love talking about food. Um, from the beginning, right, when, when you first start learning diet or when you first start going through uni doing dietetics, is it – I've got to frame this right. So everything – whenever I meet dietitians then, and the ones that I meet in my world are more um, focused around having an office in a gym where they're working on performance clients – that makes sense for me because every single diet plan they give to people is completely different um, and they're looking at unique cases. Is that the case on how they train people at uni or like everything I see, it's all, and I'm not a researcher, so I'm going to get some of these words wrong, but it's all epidemiological studies and we're looking at the entire population. How do we keep them kind of okay? Um, and I'll give you the, the context and crossover at the moment. Like we deal in mental health at the moment. Um, governments, uh, policymakers, researchers—they're looking at broken, un, like suicidal, all, all the way down the left, and then the rest of the people are in the okay category. There's no—they're not really using the full spectrum of about to, uh, or, or in, in the term of dietetics, super unhealthy, obese, whatever the, the bad end is, all the way to high performing. It seems like if we're using epidemiological studies, we're going. Let's just tell the entire country to be in the okay range. Is that is that just my perception, or is that kind of the vibe that you get from data and the, the research they put forward at university? I'll, I'll go first on that one. So, like, I, I I find it hard. Like, it's it's a hard one to answer because I I think in any profession, it is what you make of it. Like, we're we're, we're both obviously down that spectrum of working in gyms, seeing people one on one. We're very far down that end of the spectrum. Um, I I see it in universities like. I, I wouldn't put a blanket statement of that epidemiological kind of population health focus, but there is a lot of that. And as, as an example of what I see, um, one r- really basic thing, for example, is there was, there was very little talk about calorie deficits, macros. Like what I see is very basic nutrition stuff. They, there was a little bit, but there wasn't a whole lot. Of, no, there was not a whole lot on like body composition change and stuff like that, which is like... Um, Stuff that I think you need to know if you're going into working one-on-one with people, um, let alone the deep individual stuff. But another thing just from my experience is there's very different, there's a lot of differences between courses as well, as in it depends on biases of lecturers and stuff like that. For example, in dietetics, there's a, there's a movement called the non-diet approach, which is let's not focus on weight, let's focus on health and try and do it in a weight-neutral way. And then there's another approach, which is more of a weight-centric approach, which obviously takes health into account, but it's like we're still trying to see the scale move, for example. And depending on which university you go to and depending on which lecturers you have, also shapes which biases you get as well. Everyone's looking at the same research, but there's different takes based on the research we have available. I don't know. I don't know if that fully answers the question, but Tyler, do you want to have a crack? Yeah. So, you know, I guess going to speaking to what you said there about obviously different courses having different components that are they're included in that. Um, we did do like a pretty good chunk of public health in our dietetics degree in nutrition science. You do some public health um, in the masters of dietetics. It m- went more into like diet disease relationship and a bit more, I guess, delved a bit more into dealing with people with chronic disease or specific medical conditions and diet therapies for that. 
Um, so at the nutrition science level and at the nutritionist level, and this is one of the things that would separate a dietitian and a nutritionist, it's that bit more advanced level of education that we would have between how do we treat the general public or the otherwise healthy? And then what's the next level in terms of treating someone with advanced needs or specific medical conditions? And we go into that a bit more in dietetics, well, fully into, into it in dietetics compared to nutrition science. Um, that would be one of the sort of things that we, we separate. Um, in the nutrition science degree, we also do dive into like, how do they come up with like the recommended daily intake that is getting recommended to the entire population. Um, and we sort of, and it's, it's quite convoluted how they do come up with that, but oh, yeah. mate, we're going to unpack that one. Yeah, yeah, we'll let that one slide. But like, uh, we do, we do look into how these things get sort of generated and these recommendations get generated for the for the average population. Um, what we don't look into is pretty much individualized nutrition in high performance at all. Um, we might do, a, you know, a few bit of basic stuff around, you know, what are the general recommendations for an athlete? How much carbohydrates might they need to take in? an endurance race or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, we don't go in any way into specific sport requirements for any sport. Like if you were to say, what are the requirements for powerlifting? You aren't going to learn that at uni. Like you learn the knowledge that you can take and apply and then study and specialize in, in that area, which is kind of the, the rabbit hole we go down, but you definitely don't get taught it at university. It's very much like a springboard to start learning. Um, in terms of those gen pop rec recommendations and in, in meeting the needs or advanced needs or different requirements, things like the recommended daily intake are not a bad starting point. What they're there for, I guess the, the extended version of recommended daily intake is recommended daily intake to prevent deficiency. So it's all about preventing a deficiency or preventing a problem that would pop up in the, in the general public. And the way I phrase it to my clients is there is a big difference between getting enough to prevent deficiency versus optimizing performance. Uh, where do you want to be? Do you want to be low normal range and not be classed as deficient? Or do you want to really optimize the levels of pick a nutrient, vitamin D, whatever it is? Um, you know, so I think there's quite a broad spectrum there and it gets infinitely more sort of A, fun and B, complex when you're dealing with that real individualized nutrition. And that's kind of, again, what, what we go down and what we kind of enjoy doing. So yeah, a little bit more is required after getting the, the graduation certificate if you want to go down that rabbit hole too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mate, while, while we're on deficiencies, before I let Max pull this back on track, um, while we're on deficiencies, is what, what's what's the data in, or have you you've seen anything lately? From what I'm bringing it up now, obviously you brought up vitamin D. I, I know everyone wants to put COVID behind them, but this can be the last <laughs> podcast we talk about it. All of the stuff that I read is, and this is coming from Americans, this is coming from Australian doctors, nurses, the, the, the people who are willing to put their voice out there and kind of rebel against the mono agenda of it's a virus, get a vaccine, that's how we solve it. All the actual research that, that I look at, um, obviously looking at holistic health, is saying that the Western world at the moment or the world in general is nutrient deficient and vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, uh, there's a handful out there that that these doctors and, and nurses are coming forward going all the blood work on these people coming in that are proper sick from COVID, they are vitamin deficient in almost everything. Is that is that a problem that we have at the moment, that the, the majority of our population is extremely vitamin deficient? I'll start off with, with vitamin D. Like even as an example, like looking at the UK, that's part of their public health recommendations. They 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 were at the point where they're like, everyone should take vitamin D. Like this mm -hmm. isn't this isn't some hidden secret that it's like only the switched on people are figuring out and the the doctors don't know. Like people people know this. Um, 
I don't know the exact statistics in Australia, but there, there is, um, as a worldwide kind of thing, it seems like about 30% of the population is vitamin D deficient. As we are aware that um, even not just being deficient, but being on the low end of the healthy range is suboptimal, particularly for um, immune stuff, most likely in relation to COVID as well. So I'm putting the number as about 60%. And I don't think Australia is that different from the rest of the world. We're lucky in that we get a lot of sun and all these kind of things. We're, we're in more luck than the UK. That's why it's not a public health recommendation here, even though you could make an argument that it's worth almost everybody at least getting tested to see where they're at. Um, I, I'm of the opinion that most people should test at some stage, particularly considering we're lucky enough to be able to test that. Um, but like... We also spend a lot of time indoors. You work a nine to five. You're you're indoors during those peak hours. Like it's like unless you go for a walk in the middle of the day, or you get a ton of sun on the weekend, there's a solid chance you're getting a suboptimal amount. Um, with other nutrients, like I, I used to do nutrient analysis just in comparison to RDIs, the recommended daily intakes that we're talking about for every single client who walks through my door for a two and a half year period. And we know that self-reported data is not great. We know it's not 100% accurate, but on average, what I was seeing for people who were seeing me who were seeking out a dietitian, probably caring a little bit more about their nutrition than the average person, about 60 to 80% of the zinc recommended daily intake was the average of what I saw. For magnesium, it was about 50 to 70%. Those are things that almost every single person who walked through my door, unless they had a really nutrient-rich diet, they were low on those things. Vitamin C, that's harder to say because there's more nuance because it's like most people get the recommended daily intake. But um, I know Tyler's bigger on this than me, but it's like you can go quite high and reach some more benefits. Um, I'll probably kick that over to you, Tyler. Your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, yeah, vitamin D, just first of all, I would probably agree that, yeah, I'll put it somewhere between you know, 60%, around about 60% of the population is not necessarily deficient, but suboptimal. Um, and we know vitamin D like has thousands of roles in the body. It's it's acting as a cofactor in all sorts of things like any energy production. It plays a role in immune health. It's important for bone mineral density and, and all these sorts of things. So why I think about vitamin D is it's it's doing so many different things If that if you're in any way suboptimal, your body's going to utilize it sort of like a triage kind of principle. It's like, okay, what are the very most important functions that we can't do without? Let's use up what little vitamin D we got for those. And as for the rest of the stuff that would still potentially contribute to good health, we don't have any left over for that, but we aren't going to die without it. Um, that could come in the form of like slightly compromised immune system or something like that. And, you know, I'm not saying this, this is directly how it works, but that's the way I would consider are you having, you know, a low or suboptimal range of vitamins versus as much to do what whatever you can possibly do with all of that vitamin. If you had, you know, if you had unlimited resources, you can allocate those to every single process you can think of. Versus if you're working off limited resources, you know, what what physiological processes are you going to prioritize? Is that going to be immune system? Maybe not. You might need vitamin D for something else. Um, so yeah, like I said, I, I tend to recommend vitamin C almost to uh, sorry vitamin D almost to all of my clients at some stage. Um, if not, I'll recommend they get tested and it's, it's not part of one of our standard blood tests, despite, um, you know, how widely people are known to be deficient or suboptimal in it, it's still not part of it. Um, and like Aiden said, we work indoors, um, even in Australia where we're considered quite, you know, obviously a sunny country and we're, we're out in the sun and outdoors quite often. If you think about what we're just coming out of lockdown, winter, you know, working at home inside. If you are still going to an office, you might get up at, you know, 7.30, 8am, you drive to work, you're inside the car, not getting any sun, you sit in the office all day, you finish at five, you leave, 
Um, you're still not getting any sun. You drive home, it's night, or you go to the gym and you're training inside. So you're not getting this vitamin D. And, and there's very little foods that provide vitamin D. You might get a little bit from know, mushrooms or like some fatty fish and things like that. But in general, the only source is the sun. So if you're not getting it from the sun, you probably should be supplementing it. Um, anyway. Yeah, mate. I mean, I, again, this will be the last thing I'd say on COVID, but I just looked at, is that, can you hear the rain in the background? Yeah. No, sounds like it's hammering down. I'll have to get up and shut the windows after this question. But, like, I, I looked at Melbourne and everyone was blowing up at the Premier, blaming politicians. I get it. They're easy to blame. They are the, I mean, outside of Tassie, I don't know, the Tad, people down in Tassie are probably just out in the sun anyway in, in the middle of winter because they're bloody mental. But <laughs> that that Melbourne, in my mind, like, I know that we probably won't see data on this um, for a, another year or two, but it was coming from every westernised country saying that the, the high majority of their COVID problems were were some way related to vitamin d deficiency and then we look in australia and melbourne where it's cold everyone's wearing they're rugged up head to toe they're going to work in the dark they're leaving the office in the dark and then the solution is to keep them locked up inside like the people were out there blaming their mates for going out and breaching the rules saying you're gonna make us all sick again you're gonna keep us locked down i'm like Maybe the problem, the reason why Melbourne has been hit hardest out of all the Australian cities is because of sunlight. They're not getting out in the sun enough, potentially. So you're saying move to Queensland, you know, we got a fair <laughs> Well, I'm just saying wherever you live, <laughs> get out in the bloody sun, get fresh air yeah, and try and be a healthy sure. person. For sure. And that's that's the psychological thing too, not even remove vitamin D from the equation there, but for your, for your own mm. mental health and your psychology, being outdoors and being outside in fresh air is going to do wonders regardless so Absolutely. yeah for sure would have contributed well can't say it. we don't have the studies yet but you know it's probably pretty we well, can make them up mate yeah I've got, I've got a couple on facebook <laughs> there's a couple of facebook studies hey i'm just gonna run and shut this window yeah. you can keep yarning or you can pause whatever so i mean looking at nutrition and dietetics and performance is there sometimes a point where someone's going to come in or so for the powerlifting industry are there diets that contradict health over performance? And, and where do you sit when you like, look, when the guys are like, look, I just, so who's, who's the beast, that English uh, powerlifter, Eddie Hall. Robbie Hall? Eddie Hall, yeah. Eddie Hall. Yeah. I mean, that guy gets old, like he's sleeping with a ventilator because <laughs> he's so big. And he's going, look, I just want to perform the best. So do you have this, I don't know. It's a bit of an ethical kind of thing that I see where it's kind of like, well, we're trying to help people perform better, but sometimes we're making issues worse. I'm going to use an example. Um, I used to, I worked with New South Wales Strongest Man or 2019 New South Wales Strongest Man. And because he wouldn't get enough calories in during the day because he worked, all those kind of things, the same Eddie Hall kind of situation, he would have well over a 1,000 calories before bed every night. And like, there's obviously debates about the research of eating like that many calories before bed. That's going to disrupt sleep. There's potentially some other downsides associated with that. But to add on to that, he'd get reflux every night because he'd eat all those calories, the big guy to start off with, and then he'd lay down. Um, he's the first one that comes to mind with that. But then the, the issue is, what if he didn't have those 1,000 calories? He wouldn't have become New South Wales' strongest man. He would have been too small. So it's kind of like... That, that is an issue. It's something that I face a little bit, even from like, not everyone's interest is longevity, but everybody cares about health span, living a healthy life into probably their elderly years, ideally. We have all this evidence that like 
calorie restriction. That's part of where like fasting can come into play and stuff like that. Looking at all that kind of stuff, whether it's the calorie restriction, whether it's the fasting, all those kind of things, they're not necessarily aligned with being the best powerlifter, strongman, whatever they are. A lot of the processes involved in optimizing muscle mass, not just building, but like optimizing muscle mass, are also kind of counter to longevity. There's, there's overlap in some cases, but when you try and take either to the extreme, you're probably taking away from the other end of the spectrum. And I, I don't know, like powerlifting is an interesting one because a lot of people go into the sport, if they're taking it that seriously, that's a decision that they've made and they're kind of aware that these kind of things happen. I, I'm just in it to help people do whatever they want to do, but it is obviously a challenge that I've thought about and been like, how can we mitigate some of those risks without losing any performance where possible? Yeah, there's, def- there's definitely elements of that, especially in in weight class sports, especially or high performance sports. There's so many elements of things that we would never recommend as a general healthy diet type strategy. Um, even something like uh, like carb loading, like the day before a big event or a big meet or you know uh, whatever competition it might be, whatever you know, I guess whatever event you've got coming up. If you're carb loading, you're looking at for say most most guys, we'd look at somewhere between ten to twelve grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, so it's like we've got a hundred kilo guy who wants to carb load. That's one point two kilos of carbs in twenty four hours. Like you, you wouldn't recommend that to someone to eat, you know, day to day by any means. And, and you're not um, getting there without a ton of sugar either. Like exactly. really, it's a horrific way of getting there, but like it helps performance for that kind of event. Yeah. So can like, we? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to buddy. Can we can we either finish what you're doing or can we break this down, Bart? Because I, I was of the impression that carb loading was like they taught it to me at school and then in high school or, or later on in life, I started to read stuff that's like carb loading, no, no, don't do it anymore. And in my interpretation at the moment as an idiot, I look at it like I eat too many carbs, I eat sugar, my body stores it as fat. My body's not, if I'm eating carbs and sugar, my body's not conditioned to burn fat as a primary, primary energy source. Why would I carb load? So let's be specific here. So if we're talking about a marathon, if you're like if you're not if you're racing infrequently and a marathon is your key event, everything like that, um, firstly you don't necessarily need to worry about fat gain because it's like well you're you're already there, you're already at a peak body composition, you've done the work there. We know that a limiting factor on marathon performance is how much glycogen you can store. So let's assume somebody's not keto. Let's assume somebody has. Um, been taking on a normal amount of carbs throughout their training, everything like that. They're well tolerating, well, well, they're good at tolerating that amount of carbs and everything like that. They're good at using it as a fuel source. We know that the limiting factor on human performance is how much carbohydrate you can store as glycogen and how much you can take on during the race. Using that as an example, like let's, well, firstly, the literature or the research shows that it's probably slightly superior to a ketogenic diet for, for marathons. When you get to ultra endurance, like that's where it becomes a bit more murky, but up to the distance of a marathon, it seems to be there. Um, but if we're looking at like breaking the two hour barrier, for example, on a marathon, the stuff that they're working on is like, can we get more than 90 grams of carbs per hour into this person while they're running? If you look at Tour de France, Try and find me a cyclist who's taking on less than, say, 40 grams of carbs per hour. It, it's almost impossible to find. Like people like Chris Froome and stuff like that, who are kind of well known for being lower carb than the rest of still taking on a ton of carbs. So it's like when you look at it from that perspective, it's like all of those people, they, they have to be taking on carbs. But the whole thing coming back to the marathon kind of thing is it's just like it's just for that one day. You get on as much glycogen as you can. And the moment glycogen levels seem to get depleted, things seem to run out. 
there is arguments for um, for the benefits of being fat adapted and stuff like that. But when people have done, and like this, there's obviously way more research that needs to be done. But like even um, as an example, the most famous one that people talk about all the time is it's commonly criticized. But like Louise Burke did a study called the Supernova Study, and they did it on elite race walkers who you would assume like race walkers are going to be some of the people who are going to benefit the most because it's such a low intensity kind of thing. So it's like we can't even imagine that the carbs are giving that much of an advantage. And the kind of conclusion that they came to is like even, even uphills and stuff like that even that is explosive enough to kind of justify carbohydrates. So in that lens, that's where I'd view it for performance. Yeah, so carb load for your pack marches, boys. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, Mate, I, lo- I like that um, you-, you said elite and uh, walker in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Oh, it is a sport. It's nah, an Olympic exactly. sport. They're, they're fit. I know. They are, they are fit, people. It's so goofy to watch, but... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I pull it back anyway, so- too with the with the carb loading. You sort of mentioned about um, you know you're eating carbs and it's getting stored as body fat and that sort of thing. Um, what we're doing with carb loading, it's it's sort of a little bit different to just overeating carbohydrate on a regular basis. The way I typically explain it to a lot of my clients is like when we eat carbs, they don't get stored as fat. They get stored as fat if you're if you're overeating and if you're you know you're overeating your energy budget each day. Your carbohydrates are stored as muscle glycogen. They're not stored as fat. So you think about your muscles as fuel tanks for your carbs. They're getting stored in there. Now, with carb loading, with carbs, I usually take the analogy of you think your muscles like a fuel tank. If you're filling up a jerry can with five liters, five liter jerry can, you're filling up with five liters of fuel. You can't fill it anymore once it's full. Um, And then that overflow, if we're overeating carbohydrates, is what the body then turns into fat and stores it as fat. It doesn't just directly take the carbohydrate and store it as fat. Um, what we do with carb loading is it's sort of a, a physiological kind of effect where we, we call it super compensation. So it's almost like you can stretch that fuel tank a little bit and shove a bit more fuel in there. And that's what we're sort of strategically doing with carbohydrate loading. It's not so much that you're just overeating carbs chronically and it's getting stored as body fat. We're using it for fueling specific performance events. Um, and that's very different to obviously overeating on a regular basis in terms of carbohydrate. Um, in terms of like somebody who's training on a regular basis, like, um, this is something I went over last night with uh, a presentation to the Reds rugby club at UQ. Um, you know, someone training two hours a day, we'd roughly recommend at like at a high level, somewhere between six grams, you know, five, six grams of carbohydrate per day. If you're, you know, quite committed to your training, say you're a hundred kilo guy, that's still half a kilo of carbs per day. So if you're overeating that and that's spilling over into fat, you're having to eat a fair amount of carbs if you're an active person before that starts to become too much of an issue. Obviously, there's still the context of how much other calories are coming from fat and protein in your diet as well. But, you know, carbs definitely have their place, especially in fueling that high-performance exercise. Um, And, yeah, carb loading is a bit of a separate thing again. And typically, that one instance of carbohydrate loading whenever you're doing a, you know, an elite-level performance or a high-level performance or an event, it's not happening frequently enough that you're just going to pack on, you know, three or four kilos of body fat from eating X amount of carbs. Yeah, sounds good. Have you have you boys taught Shep that carb loading doesn't mean do it every day? That's Tyler's work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, work in progress. That one. No, we'll get there. Ah, <laughs> uh, good, mate. Um, so we'll, I'll leave alone all the specific high-performance stuff because I'm assuming that's what people are going to come to you and spend their money and learn how to be super athletes. General public, if our goal or my goal in personally, I'm 35, I'm never going to be a professional athlete 
my goal is just to eat a diet that keeps me healthy and alive and moving and functional for as long as possible. What are we looking at? And, and I'll merge this into two questions. Is it anywhere near the food pyramid that they taught us when we were kids? <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start with the, the food pyramids kind of thing. Because, um, like, firstly, no, I – well. Neither myself or Tyler probably go down the route of the food pyramid with, with anybody. We're both pretty high on higher protein diets. That's one thing that is relatively low on the agenda of the food pyramid. But like, I, I want to start on a common criticism of the food pyramid and then kind of address that. A lot of people cherry pick and are like, oh, well, whole, grains are at the bottom or carbohydrates. It is quite high in carbohydrate. And by definition, if we're higher on protein, we'd have to take away from somewhere. It's probably going to be coming from the carbohydrate portion. So that, that's a starting point. But like, so I don't necessarily agree with that. But like, let's pretend for a second that the population just dropped what they're doing and they started following um, the food pyramid or they started following the Australian diet, Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. Some common criticisms there. So it's so the dairy part, or sorry, the, the whole grains and then dairy are the commonly criticized parts. We can't pick and choose here, but like the vegetables aspect, if we look at five serves of vegetables per day or whatever it is, like based on a half cup of vegetables being a serve or a cup of salad being a serve, less than 6% of Australians do that. Like we, we can't pick and choose and be like, oh, the, the dietary guidelines told us to eat carbs and then be like not eating vegetables. Like we can't just choose the one we want to hear and then avoid that part. Um, and then the other thing is like the discretionary that tiny section at the bottom or whatever, um, which if you go based on like the dietary guidelines is the, it's the equivalent of like 300 calories or something like that maximum per day. It's like zero to 300 calories. It's only a tiny portion. In Australia, somewhere between a third and half of our calories come from discretionary foods. They come from junk foods. Once again, we can't be like, oh, the dietary guidelines are making us fat or they're making us sicker or they're doing all these things if we barely eat vegetables in comparison to what the guidelines say and on average people have a ton of junk food, they have a ton of calories coming from that. Those are two things that are like completely opposite of what the guidelines say. So like I always want to address that and chuck that argument out of the way because anybody who uses that argument is like really, they're, they're really just like painting a picture that doesn't exist. Like they're really claiming that the obesity problem is like stemming from that and stuff like that when that's not necessarily the case. Do I think everyone should do that? No, not really. I, I do I do like higher protein diets. But then if we also look at like longevity and stuff like that, for example, blue zones, these are areas where people are three times more likely than Australians to live to 100 years old. Like there's a lot of flaws in that kind of stuff, but they all follow relatively low protein diets. So we know you can have a healthy long life on a lower protein diet. It's not the way I'd want to do it but it is something that is definitely possible to do. And a common theme that they also have is that they have a really high plant-based intake as well. They have high vegetables. We can't just pick and choose once again and be like, okay, we'll reduce your meat consumption, but then also ignore that they have a ton of plants and they have very little processed food and they have very little junk food and all those kind of things. Yo, so where does, where does beer come on the? <laughs> that's a great. That's a grain, mate. That's Maybe a grain. grain. It's, the yeah. it's in the discretionary section. <laughs> yeah, I think with so. The, is that? Sorry, you okay. go, mate. I was okay. about to go down a completely other. You're right. No, I was just going to say with those, you know, those general dietary guidelines and that food pyramid type stuff. Um, the way I would look at it is what they're trying to do there is they're trying to make sure that you're getting like a pretty wide variety of all the nutrients, not just macronutrients, but the micronutrients we need. 
So, you know, by getting X amount of serves of grains in, you're likely getting things like your fiber, you're getting B vitamins from getting X amount of serves of vegetables in, you're getting your vitamin C and your antioxidants and all these other compounds that are important. Um, by eating your dairy, you're getting your calcium and protein and phosphate and these sorts of things. So if, you, if you're under eating or if you're removing any one particular area of those guidelines, it's probably not going to, you know, be the worst thing in the world, but it's like, how do we take what they were trying to get you in terms of your protein or your micronutrients, or whatever else, and how do we get that from other food-based sources that you're not potentially eating by removing that food group? And that's potentially what we'd look at as dietitians for anyone with any sort of special dietary recommendations. So you think about your vegan populations or your, you know, no milk or no dairy type populations or vegetarians to a degree, any sort of those special needs type of diets, any sort of food intolerances, what we do is we go, okay, what are you missing by not having that? And how do we get that back into the diet? Or how do we kind of make sure you are becoming deficient in these things that that aspect of the diet was, you know, trying to, trying to get into you. So that, I think that's where those kind of food pyramid or food guideline type recommendations, people are sort of missing that whole part of the puzzle. It's like, they're not just there for some random recommendation because we want you to be healthy. Behind that is they're going to give you this micronutrient or this macronutrient in the right kind of proportions that's going to help help keep you healthy. Um, and to, to your question on like, you want to be, you know, live as long as you can and be healthy for as long as you can. We call that sort of lifespan versus health span. It's like, do you want to live to be 102 and not be jacked and shredded? Or do you want to be lived to 80 and be jacked and shredded and 10 and deadlifted? And, you know, like there's a bit of a difference, like on, on Aiden's point there to like restricting protein. Yeah, you might live a little bit longer, but you probably won't be able to carry the same amount of muscle mass or you might not have the same ability, you know, with athletic performance that you would on a, you know, potentially higher protein diet. Um, one study stuck in my head from, this was from back in uni days. Um, we looked at a population or a study done on this group called the cronies and it was like, um, chronic restriction of calories. And they basically lived on in a calorie deficit for a hugely extended period of time. And it, you know, they had all these kind of, like, they basically were, was almost like anti-aging effect. So they lived longer, they had, you know, better inflammation, potentially better, you know, lipid profiles and all that sort of stuff. But you also want to diet your entire fucking life. Um, you know, who wants that? So is it, is it worth it? Do you want that some, do you want that performance trade-off or that increased muscle mass trade-off or that sort of ability to live a more active health span rather than just a, a lifespan? Like what's the point of living for 110 years if for the last 15 or 20 of that, you're just bedridden or sitting in a chair, you know, whatever it is. So mm. I think it's always important to, to put that in perspective too. It's like lifespan versus health span. How much of your life do you want to be healthy for? Um, and what do you want to do with that span of your life? Do you want to be active? Um, cause then it might be worth the trade off of more protein and a couple of years, less life. Like, so I think it's very individual anyway. Yeah. You always follow Mark Sisson? <laughs> not closely. I know the name. Mate, he, he is my canary in the coal mine. He, he's gone. Um, he, he's got a website called Mark's Daily Apple and he does That's, a bunch of prime yeah, foods yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, he looks fantastic for like 500 or however old he is. <laughs> he, he won't listen to this, but um, no, I don't know. He's probably in his 50s or, or maybe getting close to 60, but he, he I, I've tracked his stuff and he was uh, he, he was eating predominantly high-fat, low-carb for a bit of carbs, but not obviously not keto, and then slowly transitioned as he gets older and his training was very CrossFit-like and it was intense. And then as he gets into his 50s, he's like, I just need to go out and play around on the beach and that is my activity now. And he's still maintaining body shape, but – 
Yeah, anyway, that's oh, I'm just saying he, he's my canary to go. If he hits 80 and then can't get out of bed anymore, then maybe <laughs> I need to change some shit up now. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, those kind nah, of so, those guys in the space are always interesting to follow. Like it, it's an interesting thought experiment being like, what would I be like if I did that? Is that going to work for me? But then again, like mm-hmm. I said, there's so much individual variation and your goals might be different to theirs. So, yeah, <laughs> interesting to, uh, to watch and have a play around with. But I think with guys like that, there's always like, positive aspects you can take out of it um so mm. it's it's almost like cherry pick the things that you know make a bit of sense and might have some potential crossover to improving your life or your health but be careful not to go too far down that rabbit hole like i said and that's yeah. that's kind of a hard hard i guess point to differentiate for some people um so go say see a dietitian maybe but you know there, you go. <laughs> there it one. is do vegans are vegans healthy and is a vegan diet any good? <laughs> I can I can jump in and answer this one if you want. Nah. <laughs> you know you're talking to two powerlifters. Right? No, actually, actually, I shouldn't say that because Leah's on the team and she's a she's a vegan powerlifter as well. So they are out there. I I'm of the opinion that you can make a well. Firstly, we know like plant based diets. If we just break it down just to longevity, people on plant based diets on average live about eight years longer. There's a lot of variables in that though. And like, I, I think if you optimize an omnivorous diet, you could get there maybe longer. It's hard to say, but like taking that out of the equation, because I was just from the health perspective, it's like, that's something to think about. I have a bias towards higher protein, but like, that's once again, something to think about, but like from a performance perspective and everything like that, and even just an overall health perspective, I think you can optimize it. You can get, in my opinion, you can get the same levels of performance, but it can be hard to do that. Like, the example that often comes to my mind in the performance space is somebody who has very high protein needs, for example, somebody doing a bodybuilding show while in an extreme calorie deficit or trying to get particularly lean. Their protein needs end up exceptionally high. You could make the argument that you need even higher protein if all of your protein is coming from exclusively plant-based sources. And then you have less calories, but almost every vegan protein source has more fat than protein or carbs than protein. And it becomes incredibly challenging to do without having an incredibly high intake of protein powder, which then creates another dilemma of being like, well, if most of your calories are coming from protein powder, you've got a very low micronutrient intake as well. That that changes things. From the general health stuff, there's heaps of nutrients that are often low, but you can address all of them individually and you can find ways to address all of them individually and solve that. So it's like, once again, similar to keto, similar to my views on that, where it's like, you can set it up well, but it takes a lot of planning and a lot of people, unless they take that time to do the planning or get somebody to help them with that planning, are going to struggle with with sorting that stuff out. And there's probably going to be a lot of inadequacies left due to that. Mm. So if they're living in the wild, uh, they die. And they're vegans, they die. And they need. <laughs> they die. Right. B12. So I think, B12. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's what it comes down to to me. I think like vegan diet, you can certainly be healthier, um, and you can do it to a very high level. What I would say is it's levels of magnitude more difficult to do that than almost any other method of eating. Yeah. So through eating low carb, high fat, through eating keto, through eating paleo, through eating, you know, Australian dietary guidelines, however you want to eat, it's very hard to die from that. (laughs) Generally, you're not going to develop a critical nutrient deficiency from that. Um, The only way to get B12 as as a vegan is to supplement and, you know, B12, when it comes right down to it, it it myelinates the neurons in your brain. So it it allows neural transmission for nerve conduction in the brain. Um, Eventually, that's going to deteriorate. And along with it goes brain function (laughs) and all those sorts of things. So 
Um, you can't get it without supplementing. So yeah, you can do it, but it's going to require some level of supplementation and you can do it and you can be healthy, but like Aiden touched on, it becomes problematic in getting in some of those things like enough protein. The practicalities of it are quite difficult um, and it's not an intuitive way to eat. Um, other nutrients that are obviously a concern would be things like calcium, um, would be things like iron. And you hear the, the argument often that like, you know, spinach has got heaps of iron, like plants have got heaps of iron. And it's like, yes, they do, but they also have heaps of the things that inhibit the absorption of iron, you know? So like it's, it's hard to do well. I think it can definitely be done well. Um, goes back to keto though. You can do it well. You can do it like an answer. Like how are you going to do it? Are you going to educate yourself and do it right? Maybe get some help from a dietitian, go down the right pathways, or are you going to jump on the, you know, the bandwagon and just do it however you think you should do it? Um, probably the funniest example actually. And, don't get me wrong, I'm not picking on vegans in particular here, but one example of a client that I saw, geez, when was it? Maybe last year or earlier this year. He came to me, he's like, made the snap decision to become a vegan. Um, and I'm like, cool, let's do a diet recall. You've been a vegan for like two weeks now. Let's have a little bit of a look into what you've been eating. Um, and he's like, sweet, easy. I'm like, okay, cool. What do you been having? And he's like, you know, those vegan Oporto burgers? I'm like, <laughs> them. and he's like, I've just been having those for every meal, every day. Anything else? Like any fruit? Uh, no. Any nuts? No. Any anything else at all? Any vegetables? No. Just the burgers from a porto. Like like you like I said, you can do it like an asshole, or you can do it sensibly. Um, it is harder to sensibly though. It is harder to cover off on all those bases, and you got to make sure your supplements are on point. In a lot of cases, it's very difficult to get that from plant based foods. So um, I think that's a great point is that people, you can't even get people to do the recommended food pyramid. That thing has been around forever and there's obese people everywhere, right? And you're like, yeah, vegan, one of the harder, hardest diets to do properly. So, uh, I mean, is everyone just walking around malnourished? And just- <laughs> we have, you know, I, I came across a really cool, uh, well, not cool, kind of concerning, but kind of cool. The acronym is, um, it's called DOOM. And it's this idea that you have um, obesity, but also mal- like yep, obese but malnourished, because you are so calorie rich but nutrient poor. Um, and it's this whole population of people where you're grossly overweight, but you're also malnourished. Like when you think of malnourished, you think about like skin and bones and like barely getting by. Whereas these are you know 140, 150 plus kilo people um, who are malnourished because they're so nutrient poor. Um, yet calorie rich that is creating this obviously horrible state of malnourishment inside their body. So, you know, I think that's definitely the case of a lot of people aren't getting optimal nutrients, whatever diet they follow. But in terms of is everyone walking around malnourished, they're starting to, I guess, address things like that. I think from, you know, food fortification and things like that, you look at plant-based milks and stuff like that. And it's pretty hard to find one these days that isn't fortified with some extra calcium or some of the extra nutrients that you might be missing out from, from a dairy milk. So I think there's hope, <laughs> but um, yeah, certainly not everyone is walking around with optimal levels of their nutrients. Mate, humanity's in a pickle. We have kids in the world <laughs> that are literally starving to death. Well, we've got adults in the West with who doom. have got so <laughs> much access to sugar yeah. that they're going to die of malnutrition while being 100 kilos overweight. It's concerning. That's fucking gross, mate. Yeah. <laughs> that is gross. Let's uh, take yeah. off with Musk to Mars. Start again. Yeah, well, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, this one, 
I'm going to throw a, throw a, a, a strange one at you that I, I believed in with by reading no science at all. It just fit the narrative that I wanted to believe in, so I ran with it. Blood type dieting. <laughs> is this a thing? Tyler, that's on you. This is you. Oh, <laughs> Aim's that enough. He's like, he's like, seriously. Can I just say that no? Is no going to work? <laughs> no. Nah. Uh, in short, yes. Um, you know, it's it's not something I, to be completely honest, I've never gone too deep down into that rabbit hole. Like, it, it's not something I could speak to with any point of education because I simply see it and be like, well, that's pretty ridiculous. Um, you know, there are certain genetic polymorphisms that you have on an individual level that will change how you would respond to certain nutrients. Um, so you can get your genome mapped and you can see things like familial high cholesterol or like Alzheimer's risk. And like you have this gene that might say you might need more folate in your diet to reduce your Alzheimer's risk and things like that. So there are like genetic links to how your body will deal with better nutrients. Um, in terms of blood type diet specifically, I haven't gone down that rabbit hole too, too deeply. Have you, Aiden? My my rationale for not going too deeply down that rabbit hole is because every time I've tried, because it's our job, it's like our job to try and learn about all this stuff and address these questions and stuff like that, is every time I've gone down that rabbit hole, it's not taken too long to find a red flag and be like, nah, this whole concept's rubbish. Like the, mm -hmm. the example I was just thinking of then is like, imagine you hear somebody talking about flat earth and you, you jump on a few forums and you're you're trying to find... <laughs> is this true is this not true and within like not long you find out some stuff saying that it's it's not true and then you kind of ignore it but you don't actually understand the rationale for why people promote that concept you don't know the ins and outs as to why people do it that's kind of where i'm at with that where it's kind of like there's there's probably some logical things that people put together mm. that is why it seems intuitively like it makes sense I just never made it that far. Oh, I'll give you mine. I'll give you my five-second version. Everything I try, I, I end up believing, whether it's it's through research and, and scientific journals or uh, just through common sense in life. Most of it stems back to looking at like anthropological information. Where did we come from? That's why I, I, as soon as the primal kind of diet came out, I'm like, I need to explore this. It makes sense for me. Um, now, shelving that comment for a second, me and Max talk about it a, a fair bit. Uh, that there is 500 years ago, 300 years ago, there's old wives' tales that people or superstitions that people used to throw around, like don't put your shoes on the table, it's bad luck. And then we find out a couple hundred years later that there's actually bacteria coming off your shoes on your table, you're going to eat it, you're going to get sick. So there was some unrecognised scientific link between an old wives' tale and future science. Now, when it comes to psychology, I'm probably going to get kicked out of this bloody mental health charity for saying this out loud, but I look at astrology, star signs, as an ancient measure of psychology. Psychology today, it's realistically putting people in categories that make it easier to define and solve problems. Astrology is almost the same thing. It's like let's divide humans up into 12 groups and they those ones behave like that and those ones behave like that. There is a possibility, and I'm not saying this and I'm definitely not a flat earther, there is a possibility in the future that we find some form of link with astronomy not astrology the stars and and how people behave we just haven't found it yet i'm open-minded to that so full circle coming back when i when i learned about this blood type dieting and the the, the theory behind it anyway maybe not the the, the practical endpoint but the theory i looked at that and i'm like no one's done enough research on this yet for centuries all through myth all through history 
everybody was obsessed with their bloodline. That's all they cared about. Kings wanted their bloodline to carry on. We were obsessed with blood. Like we write vampire stories where you suck blood and you live forever. Like there was, there's something about blood that we are still not there yet with science. I think we're, we're, we're going to keep learning forever. Anyway, long story short, I, I looked at it and I'm like, the, the basic theory, whether or not it's true, is that o, I mean, o positive blood type is getting bred out, whether we like it or not. You, you get an o, o, or o positive negative. An O blood type with an A blood type, high probability the kid's going to have A blood type. Um, and I looked at it, I'm O. O is pretty much key day, so I was like, confirmation bias tip, that must be real. <laughs> um, and it works for me, therefore it should work for everyone. And obviously I don't preach this on people, but I, I do get people to, when, I, when I'm curious about what their ways of eating are, and um, high, high 90 percentages, like almost everyone I speak to who's trying vegan diets and it's working and they love it, they're all A, a blood types. And A blood type by this chart is A is vegan, B is kind of a hybrid general food pyramid, kind of paleo-y. And then, and then O is carnival. Um, so yeah, I, I get it. There's, I was asking to see if there's any science to further confirm. Yeah, I, my- I would dig deep on that. Firstly, I, I am O and I feel incredible all the time and <laughs> I don't do keto. So <laughs> a, bit of a bit of a counter to that, but, um, but you do eat high protein. I do eat high protein. Yes. Um, another, another thing that I often think from an evidence perspective is like, firstly, I'm a like, I do believe a little bit of the ancestral stuff, but from another perspective, I'm also like, well, we have a ton of data on humans currently, all these kind of things. If we have a lot of stuff showing something works with us right now and the other stuff's kind of um, not as locked in and stuff like that, I'm, I'm going to go with the safe bet. Whether or not it's the best bet, I'm going to go with the safe bet. Um, but then a, a second thing, though, is when stuff works, it gets studied because imagine you're the person who puts together something that you can sell and you're trying to convince the masses either you put together a study or you hire a, time, a team of scientists to put together a study who they can figure out the details you're just going to make enough money that you can hire a team to look after that kind of stuff there's only two studies on the blood type diet ever there's only two studies ever and they didn't have any positive findings or anything like that but like with that kind of logic like you, you can put together that study like somebody can put together that study and somebody who's selling a book or something like that it's, it's so in their interest to do that and they're this is going down the skeptical route as well, but like, conf- uh, what's the word? Publication bias. If you put together a study that doesn't back up what you, you're hoping it's going to back up, you're not going to publish the study. Mm. The fact that this has been, those two studies, they came out decades ago um, or at least one decade ago and it's never been studied since. It, like, it, it's a bit of a sign to me that like, even, even the people deep in the, even the people who did those original studies don't necessarily believe in it enough to even study it again. Or it's kind of one of those other things of just being like, it probably works great on an individual level, but the consistency might not be there enough to like put together overwhelming data to support a concept. That's that's something that yeah. I think about with almost anything that's left of my field being like, well, well, why wouldn't you study it? Um, because putting together research is a very time-consuming process and you only really want to do it if it's going to pay off. Mm. Might have to do it myself. on <laughs> <laughs> it. So, I mean, getting talking about um, sort of longevity, and I suppose this is probably down. A lot of guys in the army suffer from uh, joints, ligament stuff like that, and they're always looking for repairs. I mean, dudes even got on peptides to try and see if they could. Guys are like broken down in the army. They they like thirty five year old guys doing this stuff, and I suppose bodybuilders. Collagen's come up a couple of times as this 
kind of new kid on the block. Um, what's the go with that? So Tyler was the one who actually got me onto this. So like, I don't know, about two years ago or something like that before Tyler was working with me, um, just on Instagram, somebody asked me the question, what are your thoughts on collagen for that exact purpose? And I had read every single study that had been put out on collagen that I could find. And it looked really mixed when you look at the research. And I, I answered that question. And then Tyler's like, bro, you need to listen to this podcast. <laughs> and like, I listened to the podcast and it was, it basically featured a guy named Dr. Keith Barr who does all the research on collagen. Like you try and find a paper on collagen in relation to this topic and he'll, his name's on there somewhere. Um, and basically when you account for a few details, all of the research so far is positive. Like all of the research shows that if you time it before a rehab session, you have a relatively large dose in comparison to what's in, in most supplements and you have vitamin C in it, partly just because vitamin C is involved in one of the enzymatic processes in collagen synthesis in our body. So if you were fasted and you had no vitamin C or really enough in your system, you're not going to get that collagen synthesis and because all the studies are done in a fasted state, you need vitamin C in the study for it to be a valid study in this case. You account for all of those variables and it all looks positive, both in like engineered ligaments and stuff like that so all, we're talking about musculoskeletal injuries here, which is about 70% of injuries it's going to be potentially relevant for. But also in, in humans, in terms of it's hard to measure this stuff in humans because say somebody's got a tendon injury, we can't just cut out the tendon and like see, like has it healed? Like, But we can, we can take kind of signs and we, we have evidence that markers of collagen synthesis in the injured area are increasing. And there's a lot of people who dismiss collagen and are just like, no, nah, the mechanism doesn't make sense. It's just a form of protein that breaks down. How do we know it goes to the area? But it's like, we, we do have the research showing that the, the collagen synthesis in the body is increasing when we take it before a rehab session. That's enough to kind of convince me that it's worth taking because the downside is it costs a little bit of money, takes a bit of time to consume, a bit of a hassle. And I don't know, it's a low quality source of protein. So it's not really great for muscle building. The upside is it dramatically increases, oh, sorry, dramatically improves rehab protocols. Like some of the stuff um, from Keith Barr shows like people with patella tendinopathy, for example, where historically the, the rehab for that is what they call treat the donut, not the hole. Treat the healthy tendon. Don't worry about the injured area because that's never going to heal. You Even when you're pain-free years down the line, that, that injured area is still there. And like he's got multiple case studies of people who within – seven weeks or as long as 18 months was one of the longest ones. You do an MRI before and after and that area is healed. And they basically did a rehab protocol, which is a bit of a different rehab protocol to what's standard, but then they also added collagen. It's enough to convince me, but it's also not enough that I'm going to hang my hat on this and be like, collagen definitely works. As in, if more research comes out, because this is all very small sample size and I'm just making my best interpretation of the research that we've got so far, which has mostly come out since 2017, so it's pretty recent. I'm positive on it, but if we get like large studies coming out being like, nah, this is kind of a fluke and these people were just like, like if that comes out, then I'm going to change my mind in a heartbeat and forget everything that I just said on all these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's fantastic because I, I knew nothing about collagen. Oh, I mean, I, I started taking it about six months ago and I'm, I'm going to be completely transparent here. I saw it on Instagram. I was getting a bit wrinkly. That was, <laughs> was a Chiefs product and it was in everything and they're like, oh, you can supplement it. I'm like, I am never going to buy face cream, not not once in my life. But if I can eat it, I'm, I'm going to have a crack. <laughs> Haven't noticed any difference. Yeah. I'm still getting old. But um, that that is that's why I was sorry. I was just typing notes when you're saying that because that's a completely different use case that I haven't even looked into. 
for recovery and I need I need a shitload of recovery. Mm. Everything's falling apart. So yeah. I might have to have a look at it. A- apart from some of those podcasts where I was first exposed to it in practice was um, like back throughout my studies, I did an internship at the Broncos and ended up continuing on with them. And I was at the Brisbane Broncos for a couple of years. Um, and at that point, we, we started implementing collagen before every session, every field session, every gym session. We would do a collagen shot with your 25 to 30 grams of collagen uh, or 20 to 30 grams somewhere, depending on the size of your athlete. Um, any less than that, it's probably going to be ineffective. So you need the right amount. Obviously, you need the vitamin C with it. We do the collagen shot and the vitamin C. They go into their team meetings or video reviews or whatever else. 45 to 60 minutes later, they come out, they hit their field session or their gym session. Um, with the idea being that that collagen has been digested, absorbed into the bloodstream. Then you've got collagen-rich blood floating around your body. You go out, you train, you do whatever session, whether it be rehab, fields, gym, anything. Um, and that collagen-rich blood is getting pushed into those areas. Um, that collagen is then potentially helping with the repair, the recovery of those tendons, ligaments, those type of structures. Um, so that was kind of the first exposure I had to it in sport. Um, and now you do hear about it being used in various codes. It's used in rugby union, it's used in basketball, that sort of stuff. So, you know, these high level athletes are, are taking this stuff and are on these protocols, not just as a rehab um, protocol, but almost as a prehab, almost as a preventative type thing. Um, I kind of think about it like, um, like WPI protein, like protein shake for your muscles. Collagen is for your tendons and ligaments almost. Um, and I personally use it in that context. Like even when I'm not injured or when I'm not doing rehab, I still take my collagen before pretty much every powerlifting session I do. Um, just as a preventative, let alone, you know, as a rehab protocol. Mm. Um, and like on that topic as well, like Keith Barr, who does a lot of this research, has come out and said that they've got research that hasn't been published. I'm still waiting on it. I don't like, he talks, he talks a big game. So it's hard to tell like what's <laughs> legit and what's not. But like, He's of the opinion that like it's going to improve athletic performance. Like stronger tendons theoretically should mean you can lift more weight, you can jump higher, you can run faster. And he's of the opinion that that's actually going to translate. There's no research on that yet, but the mechanism makes sense to me. Like stronger tendons and ligaments and everything like that should carry over to that. It's just hard to say if it will. Mate, marketing 101, you don't start marketing your product till it's real. Yeah. And he sounds like research especially. If he's, if he's done a study, he's like, no, oh, research is coming. And it's all proven that collagen's garbage. He's like, nah, it has stalled for five years. Yeah, not, not even playing around though. Like that is actually one of the reasons why I'm a little bit skeptical because even though I was saying like his name's on every paper as if it's positive, he's the expert, all those things. What happens if it does tank? That's his mm. career just like, if it goes <laughs> well, that- well, he's the guy, he's the man. If it goes poorly, he's just wasted a decade. <laughs> No, nah, that's not what that's not what dietetic researchers do, mate. They um <laughs> they end up convincing the world for the next thirty. Um, you've heard of Ansel Keys, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's isn't that what happens in universities? If like you spend your whole life researching something, then you find out that all of it was wrong. You're like, no, nah, I've got to double down. I've got, I've got to get these. I've got to get these little fuckers <laughs> to believe it for another thirty years. It's a very male trait, hey. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it is. right? College college researchers have got egos too. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know how much time we got left, Max, but there is one question I did want to um, shoot across. I know the answer is probably going to be just eat more food, better foods, but supplement regimes. Can we get one for – have you got like a handful of subs that you would definitely recommend people have if, they, if they're getting into powerlifting? And then just is there supplements that people should be taking uh, who aren't aspiring to be athletes? Let's um let's go one for one. So I'll start. So I'll start um powerlifting. So I'll – you could argue for everybody, but like creatine. 
So creatine is clearly the most evidence-based supplement. I'm a big believer of supplementation. If you can't get the optimal amount through food, it can make sense to supplement. Unless you have a really high red meat intake, we're talking like a kilo per day, unless you're at that end of the spectrum, you're probably getting enough through food. But anybody who's under that, which is going to be most people, they're not getting the optimal amount of creatine. And creatine really helps with um, ATP regeneration. So if you're doing multiple sets, and it really helps with that first 10 seconds of exercise. So if you're doing multiple sets, it helps with that first 10 seconds of exercise in repeated bouts. So it's kind of like if you're doing powerlifting, you're doing sets of five, even as high as like sets of 12 or even beyond, because it helps that first 10 seconds, that then translates onto better performance overall. And it helps you get a few more reps here and there, which helps build muscle and build more strength over time. And there's a few other mechanisms as to how it can help build muscle. And the shortest way I can explain it is if you take creatine for 12 weeks, you probably gain more muscle than if you never took it at all. And then there's the mm-hmm. added benefit of you can take it indefinitely. And it seems to help improve performance on, on lifting by about anywhere between 2 and 8%. The research shows, like the meta-analysis of combining all the research shows about an 8% improvement on average, which is like about as good as you're going to get from a supplement. So, sorry, I'm gonna. If I've got any random questions, I'll, I'll jump in at the end of each one before we go back and forth. Yeah. Is there any risk? Uh, this was the the 1990s bodybuilder wives' tale that I used to hear that if you Don't start supplementing with creatine, no, 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 <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but your you, your body stops uh, synthesizing or, or absorbing or whatever it is naturally. So therefore, if you do not cycle it properly, you'll need to be on it forever. Nah, completely fine. And even from another oh. perspective, because you always get it through food, like the average person gets two or three grams through food. The standard supplementation regime, if you're not doing the loading phase or after the loading phase, either option, is three to five grams per day. So it's like kind of like just over doubling what we're naturally getting through food anyway. We're always, always, always coming in our system. It's just like eating more foods rich than that. That's almost like saying if somebody was down the carnivore end of the spectrum, we should not do that because that's going to destroy our own kind of production of creatine. Like you'd never consider it in that context. The only reason we think yeah. about that is because it's a supplement. Um, but yeah, there's no stress. And like there's the people have studied whether cycling on or off and all those kind of things make it better. And it just doesn't seem to matter. Hmm. Yeah. creatine's almost like um, the way we look at it. What the reason why you're supplementing is you're trying to reach peak muscle stores of it. So you're trying to get as much as you can stored in the muscle. It's almost like carb loading where we're trying to get as much carbs in the muscle, but we're doing with creatine, which works on a different energy pathway to create ATP. But basically your body's going to burn just naturally a couple of grams per day. So if you reach up to your peak levels and then your body's burning some off and then you're not putting extra back in, you're eventually just going to return to those baseline levels um, through what you get through your diet. So the idea with that supplementation is we're just maintaining those peak levels so that we can utilize that energy pathway for a little bit longer than we would unsupplemented. Um, you know, in certain populations like uh, vegans and vegetarians who are eating meat, so most of our creatine, dietary creatine is coming from your red meat, seafood, that sort of stuff. Populations who don't eat that have a much lower muscle, like a much lower baseline store of muscle creatine. Um, they're basically deficient in it. And it's not necessarily that it's a deficiency that's going to cause you an illness or anything like that. But it's just, if you supplement it and you're in that population, you're potentially going to get even more benefit than somebody who does have a natural dietary source of it. So there's all sorts of reasons to supplement it and cycling it off doesn't really yeah, do anything. It just means that you're going to have less available energy production through that, through that mechanism. Mm. So any others? Um, this, you know, there's a pretty slim list of, you know, supplements that are, you know, legal, safe and work. 
Um, I think something that's probably underrated as a, a supplement, whether you think of it or not, but we, we have a list of things called ergogenics, which are basically your, your legal performance enhancers. An underrated ergogenic is literally carbohydrates. Um, in a lot of my meal plans that I, that I do for athletes, I'll incorporate some sort of really simple carbohydrate source, you know, 15, 20 minutes before a training session. There's, there's literature out there that shows like if you take two groups of people and you give one of them simple sugar immediately prior to exercise, they will perform better. It will reduce what's called your RPE or your rate of perceived exertion. So you have a little bit of sugar prior to a session um, and you'll go into that session and it will feel easier, which might not be a conscious thing to you, but you might then work up to the same level of effort that you always work up to, but you're unconsciously lifting more weight, for example, or you're doing a couple more repetitions or you're hitting your interval sprints that little bit quicker. And over time, that's going to translate into a, you know, into a training adaptation or a performance gain that you might not have got otherwise. Like, um, and some of that study is really cool. It comes through like there's a glucose, there's glucose receptors in your mouth that when they get triggered, they will send a signal to your brain that, you know, it's kind of like there's nutrition on board, there's sugar on board, don't worry about conserving energy, you know, push a bit harder, whatever it might be. Um, but the research out there is like, you can even rinse the sugar around your mouth and spit it back out. You don't even have to swallow it and you will still get a performance benefit just from triggering those, um, you know, those glucose sensors in your mouth. So I think carbohydrates are pretty underutilized, you know, performance supplement. And like, to be fair, like we, we always say like the only meal plan you can stick to or the only diet plan that you can stick to is the one that you can sustain. People are going to want some sugar or some, you know, some lollies or some simple carbohydrate in their diet at some point. Let's take that. Let's shove it in immediately pre-workout. You get your lollies, you get a treat, then you get the performance benefits of having sugar pre-session. Uh, so I think carbohydrates are a pretty useful kind of tool in terms of a supplement. And then again, you can use them to carb load. You can use them to, to light up that energy system pathway immediately pre-session. So I think carbs are a pretty underutilized one, realistically. There's a fair bit you can do with them that people just don't do. Um, so yeah. just so I've got this clear, uh, you as a vitamin, sugar. You're recommending that as diet. I'm down. It, 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 it works for me. I think you said supplement, not vitamin. I eat a strict ketogenic diet and I supplement with sugar. <laughs> yeah, that, that works. works. So yeah, do most works. of the other people yeah. doing keto, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that was gold, boys. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I've, that, I've answered, asked every question on my list, Max, unless there's any more that you've got. No, guys, um, just so uh, for people listening, where can they find uh, you guys? How can they get these specialized pr plans that um, isn't just us two knuckleheads talking shit? So we've got a few ways. So the website is www.idealnutrition.com.au. Um, our Instagram, so my one is Aiden underscore the underscore dietitian. I just saw a post on Instagram saying, do not put underscores in your name. It makes it harder to say on podcasts. So I've made that rookie <laughs> error. Um, Tyler's is at lift underscore dietetics. And I also have a podcast I run with Leah, who also works alongside us. And that's the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. And for anyone trying to book in, either through Instagram or the website would be the easiest way. Golden. Thanks, guys, for coming on. That was a that was a. If there's any safe rounds or anything you guys want to drop, any cheeky little knowledge bomb or fucking horror story before we uh, close out. I'll go with a horror story. This is this is my cliche one that I go with. But like the the worst client I I ever saw was when I was on placement, so back in university, 
Um, <laughs> it's not a knowledge bomb. It's not useful for anyone, but it's a crazy story. Um, she had 16 liters of Coke per day, full sugar Coke. That was her diet. And she'd stopped that before coming to see me. And I'm a very empathetic person. And, well, these days, as a dietitian, you, you, you've got to be. Um, and, like, it's the only time in my life as, as a dietitian or student where I've kind of questioned someone being, like, as in you, you actually do that? Like, you actually you actually do that? <laughs> and she's like, no, I, I do. And I'm like, oh, so you mean, like, eight two-litre bottles? And she's like, yeah, that's what I do. Um, the only reason I believed her is because she had one tooth. <laughs> <laughs> she had one tooth left. <laughs> I don't know where they get that. Where, where, in any part of the thing? I'm dumbfounded. Yeah, it blew my mind. Um, and she got off it. So by the time she was seeing me, she'd repla- replaced it with suck lollies, and that was pretty much all she was eating. Um, that that's the pinnacle of the the malnutrition obese kind of situation. Um, yeah, it shaped shaped how I view the world a little bit. Yeah, I'm well, probably... probably... yeah, what? I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I probably got something. Mm, it, it's kind of a similar sort of vein to that, and it probably, probably speaks to your point, Adrian, about uh, what is wrong with the world. But um, I was in um, an orthopedic clinic, uh, orthopedic outpatients clinic. So in the hospital, these guys come in to you for basically a weight loss intervention, so their orthopedic surgeon can perform a surgery. So if you're over a certain weight limit, in general, your surgeon won't perform the operation on you because it's too much, too risky, whatever it is. Um, so they come in and see the dietitian or they get assigned to see the dietitian. Usually they're not there by choice. Um, and uh, I remember one lady in particular, um, you know, at the start of the session, like her surgeon wanted her down under 100 kilograms. And she's like, you know, and I, I've been wanting to get down under 100 kilograms myself. Uh, and, you know, she had a little bit to go to get there. But I was like, okay, cool. So you mentioned you wanted to drop down. Like, what are your own reasons apart from obviously the surgeon wanting wanting you to get down to this weight? Why do you want to get down there? And she's like, well, I bought this lazy boy chair and the weight limit on the chair is 100 kilos. So I want to get down under 100 kilos so I can lay in my chair. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, doesn't that just sum up the, you know, the, the state of the human race? It's like you're so fat that you want to get just not fat enough to be able to lay around in your lazy boy chair probably get fat again like it's, it's insane now that, that was to me i was like okay i'm probably not gonna fit so well in the public health care system <laughs> i'm gonna go Mate, honestly honestly everything you just said then i both those stories like that is why psychology and, and dietetics and psychology and fitness need to be working hand in hand because mm-hmm. those two people needed to see a psych before they went to see a dietitian before they went to see a doctor yeah like sure. that and I'm sure that's the underlying issues at all. No, hundred percent. Well, that the underlying issue was just about to be around about forever. Mm. It's like I'm going to get skinnier so I can sit in my chair, which is going to make me fat. So I'm going to have to get skinnier so I can sit in my chair. Yeah. Mate, people people need to to un- definitely understand the why and definitely fix their their behavioural patterns before they can go for a, a, a magic pill and a quick fix. Definitely, it's that holistic right. holistic approach. It's not just diet. Absolutely. It's not just psychology. It's not just physiology. Um, it's marrying Absolutely. all those principles for sure. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, people, if you're listening, don't eat or drink fucking eight two liter <laughs> bottles of coke a day. Go and get a go and get a nutrition plan. Go and hit some performance goals and uh, see the guys from Ideal Nutrition. Cheers, lads. Cheers, lads. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Cool.